You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. I never want to uh, play chess or strategic games with your Pastor John. Uh, Look at what he strategically did for this Sunday. So you're going through the commandments, and he looked at that and he went, oh, adultery. Carl! I'll give it to Carl. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. I honor you, John. It's well done. You're doing that. The, but not only that, right? He goes, oh, and it's push the clocks forward Sunday. I'll give them tired, and I'll give them adultery. Well done, John. Yeah, thanks. In uh, all seriousness, uh, thank you for the privilege if you're a guest or visitor, as noted, I am uh, just sort of woven in to give John a break and some time and uh, give you some chance to appreciate John's preaching, right? Because well, at least it's not Carl. <laughs> so there we go. So here we go. Faithful fear. Let's see what God's word has to say to us today. The power of fidelity. And again, this is kind of John's title, and I couldn't agree with it more. Um, we're going to talk about do not commit adultery, and we're going to get into that in lots of biblical detail. Um, but this is really not about not committing adultery. It's really about the power of fidelity. It's opposite, and it's absolute incredible power. So, again, I'm starting out the morning with a kind of all these asides. So, um, in 2011, or was it 2014? <laughs> this was a movie called, remember? The Help. And the movie itself was staged in uh, pre-civil uh, rights era, late 50s, this kind of thing, early 50s maybe. And uh, this is about a group of black women who are servants in some wealthy white families. And it's about uh, their journey toward uh, recognition. Uh, they're treated horribly with prejudice, uh, unfairly in their jobs, and uh, it's a very interesting movie, and I would recommend it if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, be prepared for some spoilers uh, in here, but it's, it was 2011, so by now I, I can't hold back on the spoilers. So, Mini, this is Mini. Mini makes the best chocolate pies on the planet. She makes absolutely delicious. She's known far and wide for her chocolate pies. And doesn't it look good? I mean, it's a little bit early in the morning for chocolate pie, maybe, if it can be too early in the morning for chocolate pie. But, right, it never can be really too early. Uh, Minnie's chocolate pie is famous, delightful, delectable, and just look how good that looks. The dollop of whipped cream in the middle, it's, it's amazing. We're going to leave it right there. <laughs> We're going to come back to Minnie's amazing chocolate pie, because there's an issue with a Minnie's chocolate pie. And what I'm going to make an effort to do is tie in that chocolate pie to where we're going. You can feel it already, can't you? <laughs> Here we go. Let's try that. You should not commit adultery, Exodus 20. That's the simple commandment. 
And in the Hebrew, it's a root verb, so there's nothing else. There's very little beyond it. It says, don't do it, and adultery is stepping outside of your marriage. So I've often said to Mary Louise and to anybody who would ask, um, over 40, almost 47, I got that right, yeah, it'll be 47 in May, uh, my lips have not touched the lips of another woman. So I look at that commandment and I go, got it covered. I have been faithful. Then Jesus says, yeah, Carl, you have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ow. I have not committed adultery, but I thought about it. And on occasion, I've harbored that thought. I've heard of people talk about emotional affairs or lustful thinking, being too close to other women. So, no, I have not committed adultery. And you know what happens when congregations go through a pastor that has? Oh, oh. That happened to a congregation that I was serving in. I was the third pastor since that pastor had committed adultery, and the echo of it was still in the hallways. It was still, its impurities and distrust was still around and woven into some of the dynamics of the congregation. So it's ugly, and it's intergenerational. It's children that have been affected by adultery that will have impact on them physiologically, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually, sometimes for generations. And if that's been you in your world, in your life, you know that. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. It's that empowering, that powerful, that difficult. So Jesus pretty much covers all the bases. And for those of us who have been faithful physically, I certainly have not been emotionally, mentally, spiritually. So I want to get to a wider context about enjoy the created while honoring the creator. The basic principle that I want to kind of make sure that we kind of grasp together is that uh, God has provided as the creator a lot of fruit of things to enjoy. The fruit of the vine, wine. There is nothing wrong with drinking alcohol. Nice glass of wine, nice red. Yours might be a nice cold beer. Those are, those, are, those are good things. Where's the problem? Is when alcohol becomes the center instead of the creator. When alcohol becomes the center, it's called alcoholism, and people will do anything to get another drink, including let their families absolutely fall into demise. So it's not the alcohol, it's the displacement of the alcohol from the edge of life into its center and focus. Same is true with prescriptions. God has supplied us with scientists and opportunities to take a drug like oxycodone and relieve pain and get people through very difficult times and, and um, bridge the gap from surgeries and trauma. What's the problem? When oxycodone or any other prescriptions become the center of life rather than the fruit and the opportunity for treatment. When they replace the creator in the center, when that happens, it becomes a problem, as is rampant in our culture and especially within the U.S. today. Taking risks. I think throughout the Old Testament and New, there's lots of opportunities for taking risks. 
of whatever nature that might be, from risking, from playing game chan and chances of risks or business risks. That's about what we're doing. It's when risk taking pushes the adrenaline button so hard that it becomes the, the reason why we live is to take risks, the so-called adrenaline junkies. Same thing might be true with enjoying delicious food. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Minnie can make a great chocolate cake, but your pastor can, can make the most incredible chocolate cake. I paid at an auction in Gainesville, Florida, $200 higher. Oh, that's right, yeah. I paid $800 for one of John's chocolate cakes in Gainesville, Florida. That's right. It was just, yeah. Everybody, John, if, you don't, if he doesn't give you that chocolate cake, you've been shorted. <laughs> oh my goodness, can he make a chocolate cake? It was part of a mission outreach and a fundraiser, and Mary Louise and I came to support it. Uh, and no better way is I found no better way ever to spend $800 on mission and have wonderful, incredibly rich. Calorie-free, I think John said. No, that's not right. Chocolate cake. So the problem is not delicious food. It's when it affects folks who end up in places like Overeaters Anonymous. When food becomes the core and the central, it becomes a problem. Discipline of fasting or dieting, same phenomena, is that there's fasting in the Bible and we're told to watch our bodies. So when that happens, that's a good thing. When that becomes our focal point and diseases such as bulimia enter into our world for fear of weight gain and those kind of things, it becomes problematic. So you can see where I'm going with this is that that's the context for what we're, ta we're talking about here is that uh, any and all of these and more, these are just sort of a top 10 list, any of these and more are not problematic until and unless they become the center. So much is true with delighting and sexual pleasures. I didn't create sex, I enjoy it, but it's God who created it and calling me to delight in it. The issue isn't the delight for sexual pleasures, it's what happens when sexual pleasures become the center of that pursuit. Groups like SN, uh, uh, SLAA, Sex and Love Anonymous, will become addicted to sex and pornography and affairs and the rest. So that's the context. That's, that's how I see life as a pastor, as a pastoral counselor, and uh, also a marriage and family therapist. It's not the gift. It's when the gift becomes the center and displaces the gift giver. That's the issue. So with that, we are designed to experience sexual pleasure. That's the design. So the design has been in place ever since Genesis 2. So you got to take a look at this. This is, the, this is um, considered the first Hebrew poem or sort of poem of joy and delight. So you can almost picture this. Uh, God puts Adam to sleep, takes a bone, takes a rib, begins to construct Eve out of the, out of the dust of the earth, gets her all fitted together, and maybe, now I don't, the Bible doesn't say, but maybe, and the Lord God in the garden extends a arm, an elbow like this, and Eve and the Lord walk up to Adam and say, I'd like you to meet Eve. And he goes, whoa. 
And he goes, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So now in this garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, this garden is it's coming up. I'm preaching on Good Friday, too. So <laughs> garden of Eden. Picture this, right? God, who's still in the flesh because sin isn't interfered with our context, introduces Eve and very, very by design has created things to work, you know, with some complementarity. Adam is happy to see her. So you've got God standing here, Eve and Adam, and they're all naked. Well, I don't know about God, but Adam and Eve are. So you got to kind of get a sense that this is a moment of celebration, a moment of purity, a moment of intense delight, all designed around the gift and the beauty of complementary sexuality. So it's this delight in sexuality, and sexuality is a pleasure, is found uh, in the wisdom literature as well. Wisdom literature calls to revel in fidelity uh, from Proverbs 5, from the message, the uh, sort of the interpretation of scriptures from the message, lovely as an angel, beautiful as a rose, though never quit taking delight in her body, never take her love for granted. Why would you trade in enduring intimacies for cheap thrills with a prostitute, for a dalliance with a promiscuous stranger? Keep loving her, gentlemen. Keep loving back, woman. It, it, always take delight. There's encouragement to be physically active in our gift of sexuality with our partners. There's none more active than the Song of Songs, and none that's been more misinterpreted. How, how many times have you preached on the Song of Songs, John? Zero. <laughs> uh, this would be my second <laughs> in 40 years of ministry. You've got to look really carefully in the Song of Songs uh, to find stuff you can preach on without blushing. I mean, uh, they are truly having a good time in Song of Songs. It's a passionate love poem that's basically been uh, interpreted three ways. Uh, one is it's an allegory about relationship with God, God's love for us and our love in return. It's very passionate. And the second is that it's relationship from the Christian perspective about Christ and him and it would later pop up and be foreshadowed by Ephesians 5. We're going to get there in a little bit, too. Um, I don't think so. My own personal opinion, having studied it and read it and looked it over, is that this is a poem about passion, about sex, about love, about drive, about desire. There are only two books in the entire Bible that are in the Bible that don't mention God. Trivia. One of them is Song of Songs. God isn't mentioned. The focus, the couple. What's by what, uh, for extra credit, what's the other one? Esther. Esther, you got it. Yeah, good job. Okay. Uh, see me later for extra credit points. <laughs> so Song of Songs is a passionate love poem. Listen, to, uh, let's see. Uh, I think I, did I skip a slide? Nope. This is kind of its introduction. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. This is how it starts. It's like, okay, here we go. I want a big, deep kiss. I'll talk to Mary Louise about that later. Uh, theme one, aroused physical and sexual desire. There's lots of seeking and finding. There's lots of looking for each other. and They do find each other. And theme two, the joy of physical attraction. They find each other, and they can't wait. <laughs> there is... 
joining and sexual pleasure and activity, and it's all very on fire and passionate and desirable. The conclusion, love is powerful, strong, even dangerous. Yeah, that's where he concludes. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as a grave. It flashes our flesh as a fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all of the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. This is just a small sampling of the impact, the poetic power, the, the passionate love, the desire, the arousal. It's all there in Song of Songs. So all of which is to say, God designed sexuality, encouraged it along the way, entered a poem that's got everything to do about a lover and the beloved. So having established the fact that God has a desire for sexuality and, and a plan and a pleasure, let's go to adultare. That's the Latin version of adultery. They're not very far off, are they? Adultare is in the Latin to corrupt, to pollute, and defile. To corrupt and pollute and defile. So essentially what you get from God's perspective is that sexuality designed, encouraged, and let it be smoking and passionate and chasing and fun. Adultery? Oh, no. It pollutes it, defiles it. Those of you who've seen the movie and are tracking along, you know why this is where we go back to Minnie. Because uh, so the longer version of the story is that Minnie um, was treated horribly uh, by the household and by the woman that she was working for with deep prejudice, unfair judgments, uh, was, was, was fired in a critical time in their, their family's life. Minnie is working hard to please, is cannot, will not. She gets fired. She's destitute. So she makes a chocolate pie as sort of a peace offering to the woman. Only the peace offering, the chocolate pie that looks so good, is tainted, polluted, defiled with her own excrement. Ugh. And she watches as her benefactor takes a bite. Ugh. See the movie. It's incredible. It's an interesting scene. Can you see why I would go there? Why it came to mind? Essentially, this is what this sex is the chocolate pie. Let's press this metaphor just for a short while. Looks really good. When adultare is introduced, when adultery comes into a relationship, it defiles it, even a little bit. Is there a little bit of excrement in a pie that would make it acceptable to you? <laughs> if we just kept reducing the amount, would you then? No. huh? Any bit, no matter how small, would ruin the pie, would you agree? Uh, would for me. See where I'm going. So a little bit defiles it. So Carl, I can be proud that my lips have never touched another, but I have defiled our sexuality by thinking about it with others. Just a little bit has defiled the pie. Ugh. 
This kind of language about defilement is then used to describe and to define not only broken relationships, but broken covenants between God and his people. Uh, it's hard to find enough verses in chapter 23 of Ezekiel to print because it is graphic. If you want some, uh, some interesting homework, read Ezekiel 23 about the two sisters. It's very graphic in uh, verbiage about how these two sisters, uh, one is uh, Ola, Ahola, she bestowed her whoring upon them, the choicest men of Assyria, all of them. She defiled herself with all their idols of everyone after whom she lusted. And this is just the frosting on the cake to stay with that metaphor, uh, because these girls were awful. And God says to them, this, what's going on with them, is what you, Israel, have been doing to me. So broken covenants are seen, broken covenants with God and unfaithfulness with God are seen in a sexual context that we can help understand. And they're not talked about the same way they are in the movie The Help and the Chocolate Pie, but they're talked about in a worse fashion. You've lifted your skirt, you've gone whoring and prostituting yourself. Her sister, Oholaba, when she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her, and with their whoring lust, if she was defiled by them, she turned from them in disgust. It's just an ongoing story of these two women. So we get God has a sense of that what was delightful, no matter how much is introduced, defiles the pie in unbelievable and incredible ways. It's true from Hosea. This is, this is the oddest calling. If you're familiar with Hosea's calling in the Old Testament, he's the first of the minor prophets. They're called minor prophets because they're just one mission-oriented guys, and um, they're toward the back of the Old Testament, the way they're grouped. But either way, Hosea is called on to marry a prostitute. Really? He got to marry, and what's worse than the fact that he's got to marry a promiscuous woman, a prostitute, uh, God calls on, is that her name is Gomer. My goodness, I don't know about you, but I grew up in an era when Gomer introduced a whole different set of images into my head. <laughs> Gomer? Prostitute? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then he has three children whose names are meant to reflect Israel's unfaithfulness son called Jezreel, that's where a valley where they went ahead with a very God-unapproved battle. Lurah-maha, which means not loved. Lo-ami, which means not my people. God makes a point of what's happening to their relationship with God's people through the prophet Hosea. She even cheats on him and runs away, and he has to buy her back. All of the serving is foreshadowing, all of the serving as illustration and with the sexual metaphor of his life and her prostitution and promiscuity. She was really, really ruining the pie. What an amazing calling. But Jesus has a deeper, more pervasive definition. So he says, you have heard it said, like we talked about already, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. It is pervasive. Lustfully, impulsively, selfishly, 
is the word lustfully, means impulsively, selfishly. The Greeks, philosophers, you would, they would overcome selfish impulsivity by reason. So the Greek philosopher would say, you think your way out of lustful situations and selfish situations. The problem with thinking your way out of them is that the brain that you're using oftentimes in lustful situations is not a blocks off and makes unavailable to you good reasoning. I can't give you the whole story, but when my dad read to me the birds and the bees, he said, make a decision ahead of time to think through what your sexual goals are. And he didn't say it quite that nicely. And if you stop thinking with your brains and start thinking with other parts of well, you know the rest of the story, then be careful. What happens to reason in sexual situations is it becomes diminished. There's actual physiology, many of you may be aware of that, where you become, you don't have access to the higher cortical thinking, the emotional, physical, stimulated part of your brain takes over and you follow your pleasures. And again, if your pleasures and your following are all serving the Lord instead of becoming the center of the world of your life, then they work well. When they become the center of your life, they devour you. The problem with using reason to get yourself out of lustful situations and difficult circumstances sexually is that reason isn't available. Physically, physiologically, <laughs> you have less reasonable thinking. For us, it's overcome as we are sanctified and made holy. This is a separation here. You can't think your way out of sexual dalliances and situations. You have to rely on, depend on, look for a source and resource outside of yourself to enter into yourself to make the difference. And that's the process of sanctification, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the work of real love. And that's where the rest of the sermon will go in the final third of it as we wrap it up. The power of God's fidelity is the point, is that not reason, the reason won't get us there, but the power of God's fidelity. He tells Timothy in the second letter, which is the last letter he ever wrote, and he was in prison just about to be executed, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. First thing to recognize and to know is that no matter your guilt and your sorrow, your difficulty, your unreasonable decisions that were made in, around the gift of sexuality, no matter what they are, we may have been unfaithful, but God has not. In the midst of our unfaithfulness, he stands faithful, focused, loving, unchanged. That's important to know because I've ministered to many in my pastoral office and my therapeutic office who are absolutely broken and thought they could never, ever pull together a marriage or a relationship or any of those things. And the reality is, it's not about you. If you look inside of yourself, you will see hurt and shame and ugliness and a pie that's been defiled. But if you look to God, you will find faithfulness. A God who is still, are you ready for this? Are you ready? A God who is still pursuing you. You haven't become defiled to him. He still wants you to be with him. Wow. That's where we go to Psalm 51. We follow David, who was absolutely accused and followed the sexual dalliance, right? And had uh, sex outside of marriage. 
And with him we say, create in me a clean heart, O God. Oh, clean my heart. See, it's about cleansing. Renew a right spirit within me. It comes from outside of us, folks. Nothing we can generate internally, but what God does is give to us a new heart, create in us a clean spirit. He says in the prophet Ezekiel, just a few chapters after 23, this horrendous, shameful chapter, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. That's what God does. That's what he does. That's how we would identify as the waters of baptism in our world today. That's what he says to, Paul says to Titus, who gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I think of some of the folks that I've ministered to over the years in congregations literally decades ago, and sometimes I have seen marriages absolutely ruined for genera- and children for generations as a result of adulterous affairs. But I've also seen the opposite. I've also seen folks open them up to God's will, God's work, God's ways, and receive a new and clean spirit. And I've seen stronger marriages and stronger relationships and kids who have been loved more so than ever before from the new spirit that has been created in them not from any resources that they could find because they've been lost and they can't find the reasonability, but from the new spirit created in them. What happens, the final point of the message, is that what God does is take the, the power of his own fidelity and begin to weave it into our lives, begins to just make it a part of who we are, add his ingredients into our lives. So he says, husbands, love your wives. How? How, how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. And again, making her holy. For what purpose? Having cleansed her by the washing of the water and the word. Okay, so now what we get is St. Paul making this jump. So we've got, like, follow again. God standing with Eve, introducing her to Adam. All the pleasure of sexuality, the wanting and the seeking and the arousal of Song of Solomon the way in which it's abused and fought off and and defiled by us. When we return to God, we discover this is what God, the power of his fidelity is what changes us, the new and right spirit he gives to us. And then that love becomes integrated into daily life, into how husbands and wives love each other. Love, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing. Husbands, are you ready to give yourself up for your wife? In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. This is a very interesting text. He who loves his wife loves himself. (laughs) For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Paul takes this language, the body of Christ, men's body, the feeling that men have, what we commonly know today is men's egos. Any men have egos in here? I'm asking the wives. <laughs> okay, let's not answer that. The point of that is it takes all of that and wraps it together, integrates it into this incredible new dessert. He takes the love that can't be generated from inside and provides it from without and gives us one of these. 
This is John Rothworthy cake. My time up? Did I get cut? <laughs> this wasn't created and then defiled. This was created by God and said, in it are the opportunities that you have to love each other as I have loved you. And for those of you who are a part of that sacred covenant relationship, it includes the desires and the sexual pleasures that are found, and it tastes sweet. Go ahead. Have a nice big piece of pie. You're going to love it. The power of fidelity. In Jesus' name, amen.